Um, so basically the goal of today's session is to, one, present the work that I've conducted on like improving guidelines for med short-term medical relief trips, but also, two, to pick your brains. Um, you guys are the experts in your own areas, um, and I'm sure you guys know a lot about the organizations that you've worked with, the areas that you've gone to, and maybe together we can continue improving the guidelines that I provide today. So just as a short introduction, um, there's about 6,000 U.S. medical relief trips that are conducted annually. And these include both short-term trips, which I considered shorter than 10 days, and long-term trips, which is anything longer than that. And a conservative estimate is that each year over $250 million is spent on like, medical relief um, internationally. And so that's a lot of money going into something that, while it is for a great cause and is improving lives, um, doesn't have a lot of standardization in the field. There's no one set of guidelines. Does anyone have a guidelines they use when they go on a medical relief trip? No, but yeah? Kind of. And what organization are you working with? Rhett Perry Love Foundation. Okay. The International Eye Care and Evangelism. Awesome. We partner along with optometrists and ophthalmologists. Okay. Very cool. And do you guys use these guidelines to um, compare with other organizations? We do. We've been we did short-term medical missions for 10 years prior to starting our own foundation because we just couldn't find anybody that had quality of care, so we tried to exactly. find some other countries. Very cool, very cool. So that's like one model that um, I'd like to try to highlight through this presentation. So surprisingly enough, um, having a guidelines in the field is not that common. It's hard to create a guidelines that applies across the field for a different organizations, first of all. Second of all, every like medical relief organization kind of operates as an independent entity. So there's not much cross-collaboration, not much communication between the um, entities. And unsurprisingly, this leads to a very, like a scarcity of quantitative um, outcomes data. So looking at this situation and coming in as someone who's volunteered with medical relief as a medical student, as a pre-health student, um, I wanted to work with community partners and medical relief organizations to try to improve on this challenge. So what we ended up doing was I focused in on primary care short-term medical relief trips that were primarily serving Spanish-speaking countries. Um, and I found a total of 19 organizations that fit my needs. And of these organizations, the majority of them were religiously affiliated, and most of them were about medium size in terms of administrative staff. So that was between three to 10 folks. Um, so our primary question was, how do short-term relief trips from the US operate and provide this type of quality primary care to these patients in Spanish-speaking Latin American countries? Um, oftentimes, when we're from America, we expect the standard of care. So what keeps us from holding that same standard when we go abroad? So in terms of objectives, first of all, we wanted to operationalize the idea of something called a best practice. Like, what is a best practice in the field? Who can define it? Like, what factors are you supposed to quantify and qualify when you're defining what best practice is? And then number two, use that definition to basically 
analyze the level of best practice in the field um, and be able to compare these organizations that are serving, providing primary care in Latin America. So in terms of methodology in my research, um, we used a mixed methodology. So first, we conducted a comprehensive literature review, and we basically focused in on works that were similar to the organizations that we were working with. So this includes primary care, short-term, um, peer-reviewed review articles in English, because that was our language, and then um, focused on Spanish-speaking Latin American countries. And we found a total of 36 eligible articles within a confined time period because we wanted it relevant. And then in part two of our study, we then conducted and analyzed the eligible relief organizations. So of the 19, we reviewed their websites. Um, we also looked over their IRS tax documents and whatever else financial information they were willing to disclose to us. And then we conducted phone interviews with a subset of the organizations that were able to be reached. Um, in terms of the tool that we ended up developing, so what we did was we wanted to have it operationalized to a yes-no format. And we, we did this because ultimately improvement will come from the organizations themselves, from members like yourselves who can go down assessment checklists and be like, yes, this applies, no something that can be used in the field pretty fast um, and something that's understandable to um, really anyone who picks up the paper. So it includes questions on both quantitative values and qualitative values because both are important when understanding like quality of care and patient health. Um, and then finally, we validated it by um, going in-depth with uh, five interviews um, with some organizations. So ultimately, from the data, from the review of the literature, we found that there were three key aspects that kept coming up over and over. And these were, which may not come as a surprise to you guys, these were efficacy, sustainability, and long-term impact. And these are probably words that you've heard over and over, and you've wondered, like, how can I make my organization more sustainable? How can I make it have a longer impact? But these are kind of aspects around which we focus this questionnaire so that you can compare how your organization is doing to another organization and not only take that comparison to help yourself know where you're at, but also ask that organization that's probably like doing better in some aspects and maybe not doing as well in other aspects and be like, how can I learn from you to improve both of our organizations? Yeah, do you have a question? Yeah, um, I'm actually going to go on to define them. Is that okay? Great, thank you. So before I go into the details, um, in general, um, the framework for best practice that we developed was we went through the pre-trip aspects, um, the post-trip aspects, and then the during-the-trip aspects. And then we used qualitative research to pull that and turn it into the three aspects. Um, and then after that, we conducted the analysis of the 19 organizations using our guidelines. So we found that the majority of organizations, over 50%, um, were scoring about, on average, in the efficacy column. Uh, same thing for sustainability. But in terms of long-term impact, a lot of the organizations weren't as far. Um, a lot of, it's, a harder, it's a harder goal. So long-term impact... Um, 
is usually like more in the future. It's 10 years out. It's five years out. Creating sustainable networks, on-the-ground organization partnerships. Um, and so a few organizations did really well on it, and those are the few that we can learn from. Um, so the same three organizations were meeting above 80% in all three aspects of efficacy, sustainability, and long-term impact. And then 84% of them were underperforming in at least one of the three areas. So that just shows that we have a lot of area to improve on, but it also shows that we have models that are really great and can bring us hope for the future. Um, and then finally, just thinking about the future, because we have three high performers, um, I think it's really important to take a look at what those organizations are doing and maybe consider what are they doing that we can do and then maybe also how can we improve on what they're doing as well. So just in terms of answering your question, um, I have, so this work was published in the International Journal of Public Health, um, IJEPH. If you guys ever want to look it up, um, you can find the guidelines attached to the article. Um, but just to define efficacy real quick in a couple questions, it's looking at like resource monopolization, um, like applications, vetting of volunteers, vetting of translators, cultural competence, um, translator ability, using a medical record system. So is your organization coming in and just doing paper charts that aren't necessarily followed up? Or is there a more systematic way of keeping your patient health? Um, are there orientations for volunteers before the trip? This might seem like a no-brainer, but of some of the organizations that were interviewed um, and reviewed in this study, a lot of them kind of were ad hoc, and there's a huge breadth of how organizations across the field prepare their volunteers. So some of the glaring issues were organizations that used translators for, say, the Spanish-speaking patients but they were maybe high school students, or they were um, native speakers, but they weren't comfortable with medical jargon. So imagine going into the doctor's office with your mother-in-law and then having to translate um, in your language, like news of um, palliative care. So that's a very, very um, like vulnerable topic. The words you use are going to be very impactful to the patient, and then having to do that in a language that you might feel comfortable speaking day to day, but it might not be suitable in a medical office. And so having the standards of care in place to make sure you have like competent translators, competent volunteers, um, competent medical folk, um, certifying that those are actually doctors going out into the field um, is very important. And so just another like quick case study that um, I came across um, all of the organizations that I worked with were under the clause of anonymity, just so that we could share it across the board, because some organizations are obviously doing worse, and some organizations are doing better in some aspects. And so there's a few organizations where the medical professionals were out of their license and weren't legal to practice in the U.S., but they were also operating under the idea of is doing some good better than doing no good. Um, but you could also argue in both ways, right? So if you're not actually able to practice in the U.S., 
is the good you're bringing elsewhere necessarily a good in general? Um, so a few other aspects of efficacy. Um, are, they, are you tracking the number of patients served? Is there how much funding is actually going toward patient services? So some of the IRS documents for some of the certain organizations showed like over 50% of funding was going toward administrative costs. And that might just be a reflection of how they were um, recording their services, but it's also kind of concerning um, if they couldn't follow up those questions. In terms of sustainability, we looked at whether there's like board of directors and other advisors to really weigh in and give greater um, direction to the organization, whether they're integrating local health systems, because regardless of where you're going, there's probably some governmental oversight. And even if it's very sparse, um, you do have to navigate those local relationships. Um, are you registered as an official 501c3? Or do you have a sustainable or positive revenue? Um, and do you have a transparent executive statement of funding on the website? Because um, it's kind of a no-brainer when you compare it to organizations, organizations that do. And then you're wondering, well, if it's, so, if it's so clear to be able to write out your funding and your diagrams, why can't you share across the board with other organizations as well? Um, and then in terms of long-term impact, are they accredited by third-party audits? Is there a non-discriminatory policy of service? Um, do they explicitly tell their patients that if you are religiously affiliated, that this health care that you're receiving is not contingent upon the fact that you are ascribing to that religion? So whether you are a religious believer or not, um, having that patient-provider dynamic is something very important to ethically consider and could impact the health of the patients and their trust in the organization and in Americans in general in the long term if they feel that dichotomy. And then is your organization preparing to leave the country? Because short-term medical trips, they bring so much good. They're healing people. You guys are doing awesome work out there. But in the long term, you want to be able to say, I created a sustainable and local system where they can sustain themselves and I can pull out in maybe five years, maybe ten years, and know that they'll be standing and that they'll have locally trained volunteers and locally trained providers and a system that will support the health of the population I once served. And that seems like a really big lofty goal to some organizations in some areas of the world, but it can be done. And we have models and or other organizations that have done it. Um, and basically... Long-term impact is translating all short-term goals into long-term goals. So I was just looking down this yes-no checklist that is on the uh, research paper that I published. And so if you guys, like, want to take a look or are interested in maybe uh, adapting it to the use in your organization, like, definitely feel free to contact me. Feel free to just pull it up. It's a public access um, article, um, and I'm happy to hear your thoughts or questions. Um, Be able to be adapted to those situations as well? 
Are these medical um, efforts undergone by the church still? Okay. Um, the good thing about the guidelines is that it's so broad because the 19 organizations were so different. Um, so you could definitely go down the list and pick and choose the ones you want. I could see right off the bat that it could apply for a number of the questions. Obviously, the ones applying to bigger organizations would not apply. Yeah, exactly. But you could definitely adapt it and cross off the ones you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yes? Of course. I will actually write it on the board in really large font. I can barely read it myself, so. <laughs> um, excuse my handwriting. Yeah, www.mdpi.com forward slash 1660 yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Slash 16, slash 5, slash 745. Awesome. Thank you, guys. It's a collective effort. <laughs> um, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. So, global health fellowships are kind of increasing, it seems like, uh, which is a great for the like scholarly and more guidelines and more just shareable resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you referenced the journal that your article got published in, but are there other um, global health journals that you know of or that you would recommend for people to look for? That's, a, f- that's a fantastic question. So... One of the reasons why I started doing this work was because when I did a review of the literature, there was very little work done on like guidelines across the board. There are a few really good articles on, um, like, there was one attempt at creating a guidelines. It kind of fizzled out, but I can give the name of it. It's Maki et al. That's the author, but I'll look it up. Um, I'm sorry, what? Do you know what journal that was in? Yeah, look it up. Oh. <laughs> of course. No. Um, but other than Maki, Maki's team, um, there isn't that much work. But if you guys do you know of any other that are up and coming in the last half year, um, there might always be something new coming out. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, so the journal name is... I-J-E-R-P-H. It's like International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. But Perfect. And I'll look at the Maki et al. article for you real quick. Or actually find me after, if that's okay. Unless anyone else wants it. Uh, okay, great. Um, you and then you? Okay, thank you. Um, so we're coming from Central America, Guatemala, Nicaragua. We have two clinics, and this is really reflects our goals of sustainability and efficacy and making a long-term impact and eventually pulling out uh-huh. and local practitioners and training people in the field. Yeah. Um, however, when we hear certain things, like little details, um, my question is how do we 
um, find resources for these like best practice guidelines. For example, the valid point that you brought is paper charting. So we chart everything and we have our own like Excel sheets basically. Mm -hmm. uh, but we don't have an EMR because whenever we reach out to companies that manage big electronic medical records, they always say you have to pay us this much and yeah. this is just not possible for a small nonprofit organization. That's so right. do you have something like a collection of like best practice advisories, resources, things like um, would serve as a guidance to people who want to implement certain things um, from your list, but <laughs> How, how can it be possible for nonprofits and like in the context of resource shortage? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, as you guys all know, short-term medical relief trips are not the most financially wealthy <laughs> um, entity out there. Um, so, I guess when I was making my point about having a, a medical record for the patients, some organizations, you guys are already doing pretty good in terms of you're keeping that chart record. You're keeping those Excel sheets and hopefully when the patient returns you can pull them up yeah. again. So some organizations are not as advanced and they have paper charts but they kind of don't refer back to them. So you have chronic patients who come back and they're like ED flyers. They come in, they get the short-term cure for their like diabetes or something really long-term and then they come back again and you're like oh I recognize this patient but I don't have their charts because it's on a random piece of paper. Um, in terms of having an electronic medical record or some way of improvement for organizations that are interested in continuing to advance, I unfortunately don't have that. Um, I haven't looked into that aspect but maybe we can open it up to the audience. Is there anyone who's looked into like improving on the medical record with your organization or no right next to you <laughs> <laughs> so we've been all over central and south america and now into nigeria twice so we're trying to partner with our governments the biggest thing is reaching out to the ministry of health and seeing if they have a health information system in place mm -hmm. we helped police set theirs up nine years ago wow so they got wiped out from a hurricane in 88 and never even thought twice to do it and i was like why aren't you tracking and then to come alongside village elders and say, here's your patient referral chart, here's their game plan for future uh, health, and then to partner with those people and say, okay, can we work with you? I leave all of our documents in our hard forms. We do it hard form and EHR so that I can track on this energy demographics, but then they can have the hard sheet to start their files in whatever village we've attempted but then to teach them how to scan in and create an international health care system so that they can track. So it's possible. It's easy if you've already got a spreadsheet. Most people understand how to use Excel in their government systems, wherever you are. Go to that person. It's going to take a lot of red tape and a lot of stay on top of them, short, concise phrases for them because they're like, oh, my gosh, y'all are Americans. Y'all do everything crazy. Yeah, we do, but... You know, take it from an OCD standpoint, bullet point everything for them and just say, this is how you start this, this is how you plug it in. I walked in, brought a la old laptop, had it loaded in, here's your jump drive, I'll teach you how to do it, and I would go back down every two to three months to make sure that they were entering properly, and now they've got a highly functioning system. Same thing is happening in some remote areas in Nigeria and in southern Peru. Okay. So. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so I, in regard to this topic, like a lot of other topics, your, your testimony uh, points out the, uh, 
actual, in my opinion, what's actually needed is a champion. You've got to have somebody like this lady able to do it. And I think uh, it's one thing to say, well, we should have or maybe we don't want electronic medical records. But if you, if you do want them, I think it's, you know, I hate to see to uh, give in, but I mean, that's the way the world is going. So somehow or another, everything is going to become electronic. Then rather than, it might be a good idea, rather than looking for an electronic medical record system you can use, find someone who has the time. This kind of thing takes time. It takes time and creative thought. Somebody has to be able, somebody who can communicate with people and spend time texting and emailing, following up in person. And uh, I would say, you know, one thing you described was that face-to-face contact. Without that, it's almost impossible to make the, anything to do with the relationship with the government work. You've just right. got to stand there right. in front of a, somebody or a whole line of somebody to talk to mm-hmm. them. So the critical thing to do first is find someone who's really motivated by this. Because you, if you're a strictly medical person, you may not be. Or your spouse or somebody who's your financial person on the trip. They're not going to have these skills. It's key to look for somebody who can do this for your team. Somebody who's really motivated, has a little bit of time, has some knowledge, you don't need a ton. Finding the person is key. And I, I serve in some remote areas at Haven that are, have nothing. Mm-hmm. So, um, and work with the patient and doctor, the American doctor, and started a blood pressure program. And we gave the medical records to the patient. And then they keep them and bring them back. And you're talking about people that have nothing. So they're just, that is valuable to them. And it has worked. And then, you know, the doctor, the Haitian doctor goes back and does follow up. And he sees other Tuesday. So hopefully, but I love her idea. <laughs> so those, those, you know, for, but you can start small because that is the whole point is that you need to um, be able to, conti- you know, not just break it, but continue it. I love all this like contribution from the audience. Thank you guys. Um, one more thing that I want to add on to your question. So I've worked with like leveraging health systems in India from a more design thinking standpoint. And um, one thing that came about much like I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name. Oh, it's Rayanne. Rayanne. Okay. Um, and much like Rayanne was saying, so in India, a few of the smaller county or like smaller less funded hospitals, the public hospitals basically, um, had that issue with medical records. And what the medical teams did was they brought it to the attention of the government and showed how much money could be saved by having that medical record system in place. And what actually ended up happening was with some outside contribution and teams from America and other places around the world, um, they ended up creating basically what is an EMR on your phone. And so this is a system that was coming into such a, like a severely underfunded hospital system. And then the government got in place and was like interested and invested and worked across the globe to do it. So maybe like you can't do it on your own as an organization that's a small organization. Maybe it's not so funded, but you could reach out and say, hey, like, are you willing to partner with us? Uh, maybe the EMR companies aren't willing to do that because they might be coming from a different perspective, but it doesn't hurt to try. And then maybe you could try crowdfunding for
for the first portion or um, sending out an announcement and say, like, hey, we need somebody who has these skills who can come in and maybe ideate around this issue so they might be able to bring some new solutions to that issue. Yeah, of course. Is there that? Okay, hi. You mentioned third-party audits, like coming mm-hmm. from other organizations. Is there any organization that does that that you know of or someone you can recommend that um, does that? Yeah, um, so when I say third-party audits, um, it was more of a third-party audit of the financial aspect of the organizations. So some of the organizations were able to have, um, like, Better Business Bureau or other more highly, um, like, basically, how do I say it, like, well-recognized awards or stamps saying that, yes, we're spending our money the way we say we are. And that brings trust not only to the organization, but also to future donors and funders and advisors. So it just kind of creates a positive cycle. Um, I think it would be a really cool idea to have people who come in and third-party audit the organization on the ground. But I don't think that's sustainable just because some of the organizations are so small. But I think that instead of an outside person coming in to do a third-party audit, what this guideline does is let... Any member of the organization, because everyone here is so is here because they want to improve how their organization is working, any member can come in and do that audit on their own using this objective guidelines and do the same thing, basically. So, thank you. Yeah, of course. There is a guy that is standing, um, they have a booth, um, it's a big company of people in the student block in the basement. Uh, they do audits, and they're like for, former FBI investigators. Yeah. That's that so do cool. Financial audits of nonprofits. So if you're looking for a company like that, he's he's right there in the basement. <laughs> that is awesome. And I was gonna interject. If not, your CPA or financial accountant, they have a list that they have to subscribe to and turn everything into. If you make anything under fifty thousand dollars a year, you do a 990. Okay, so it's super easy. Um, over that, it's required that you have a third-party audit and to come in. So just know that there's a lot of standardization with the IRS. So make sure that you're doing your research. Yeah. So cover it, but it's really good. Great. It's like $1,500 for the year. Cool. Yes? Part of this is just opening up communication between how certain groups can do things very well, very organized, is there any listserv system that people can communicate on, go through an email system and just say, hey, we do this, 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 and this, you know, these are some kind of pointers that might be useful? For best practices? Um, not at this moment, but we can create one. <laughs> I, I think, like, with the community we have in here and in networking beyond, that would be a really great idea. Um, if you guys are interested, I can, like, post like a short, like a maybe we can all join the same email list at the beginning and then um, maybe you guys can all email my email and then I'll add you into one like listserv and we can create that community from here. Would that be a good idea? Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you. Sorry. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, sorry. One, two, three, four. I'm sorry if I didn't get to you in order. Like I'm just seeing it in the order. Um, go ahead. Or the man behind you and then and then you. Mm-hmm. The website is called Best Practices in Global Health Mission. 
write that down as well. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I wrote it right here for everyone who's interested in checking it out. That's a great resource. Um, so I wrote my email, my uh, work email, on the left. Oh, okay. Sure. I'll just read it off. M, as in the first letter of my name, Y-C-H-E-N-G, the number 8, at g.ucla.edu. Does anyone need me to repeat that? Yes? Okay. M-Y-C-H-E-N-G 8 at g.ucla.edu. And it will be up here at the end as well. Cool. Does anyone... Who was the second person who had a question? I was actually going to mention what he just said. Oh, perfect. Okay. So we have... Okay. And then I think... Is he next? Yeah. Thank you. So in your report... Um, one of the things that you mentioned as good practice is uh, orientation before the trip. <laughs> Does it include some information about that? And I'd like to, to maybe hear from folks, what do they do before they send teams out for orientation? And what did you find to be, just if it's not in the paper, to yeah. be good practices for that? Yeah, um, so I'm not sure if it was in the paper because we had to cut it down to fit. Um, the paper guidelines, but some of the things that we noticed for orientation, like pre-orientation materials, were having packets for volunteers so that they could really like study up on where they're going, like what they're doing, what is appropriate behavior, what kind of, um, what are their responsibilities as a volunteer, and what they shouldn't be doing, because having that ambiguity and being like a pre-health student, for example, and being like, oh, like, well, they let me touch the patient and do certain, like, procedures. Having that, that, that comes from a place of ignorance, right? So being able to be taught before that situation happens and being able to have yourself say, no, that's not appropriate for someone who's a volunteer. And while I appreciate this offer, I can't do that because I respect the patient's body and their health. Um, and then also having, like, an orientation together as a group maybe just to cement this information, have a chance to ask questions. Um, these are very common, like, orientation styles that I've seen, but maybe the audience has some other Zoom ideas. Calls. Exactly, Zoom, Zoom calls. To bring the team together before we Exactly. That's exactly. Um, does anyone have anything to add on that, or is that another question? Um, how about to add on that question? Okay, yes. Thank you. 
We have spiritual formations. Yes. So, and then we have prayer focuses, and then we have uh, prayer warriors who pray the perimeter who come alongside as translators, but everybody goes through the same training, so they know all the medical terminology. We have the cheat sheets. Everybody stays on top of that. But we're also doing it with our on-the-ground contacts, whether it's our local pastors, our government officials, um, anyone hosting us to kind of go through. We go through all the cultural diversities and how to process what you're going to have because you're going to have the mountaintop high and then you're going to have the valley low and trying to reintegrate back into society when you get home how do you process what you just encountered exactly so we do six months after so we do it's a full year when you sign up i really i really like those both those models yeah sorry it's kind of shifting gears but uh, i'm just curious if in your literature review if you had found anything that um I guess in my experiences of, of short-term medical mission trips, I don't really feel like they're the most adequate in treating chronic illness. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if they should be, if we should be treating chronic illnesses, diabetes, mm-hmm. hypertension, on these short-term medical mission trips, and if there's any like kinds of resources. I don't know. It's kind of, I don't know if it's exactly related to what you researched or yeah. I don't know if you have any resources. Um, so that definitely, of course, came up, and that is one of the biggest ethical issues of a short-term medical mission because what good can you bring a chronic patient? At the same time, what is the goal of a short-term medical relief trip? Some people would say, um, some people would say just drawing from the literature that it's to be able to screen through a population of folks who don't normally get care. And so sometimes you are able to catch disorders, disorders or illnesses that can be cured by maybe an SDI, something that's like treatable with a medication in the short term. The problem is, how do you screen out chronic patients? Do you, like, stop them at the line and say, hey, we're giving everyone a physical exam today, but you're not allowed because you have diabetes? Um, So that's a great question, and it (laughs) it speaks back to an age-old ethical issue. Um, But I think at the end of the day, whether you do support short-term medical relief trips or not, I think the end idea would be to be able to make it into a long-term solution, something sustainable, something that wouldn't be short-term anymore so you can treat chronic uh, patients alongside every other patient in that population. Um, yeah. I don't know if that really <laughs> answered your question. But Is there any resource that you know of or any article that addresses that topic specifically? Um, there are a lot of articles talking about like the ethics of short-term medical, like if you go on PubMed and you want to look a little bit more into the topic, I would definitely do so. It's a fascinating issue to, it's a fascinating lens. Um, It's mostly going to be like an ethics issue, but um, it might spark some imagination. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead and then you. Um, I think I'm struggling with just the term relief, like a relief trip, because relief in and of itself is short-term, whereas what you're asking for are sustainable 
developmental changes, right? Absolutely. Um, so I think even just having that conversation with um, with participants in um, in these organizations, the volunteers that are coming, why are you coming? Are you coming to do relief or are you coming to do development? Because mm-hmm. um, I think what what you're ideally trying to do is do development through short-term tri- uh, short-term trips, partnering with long-term national organizations. Exactly. Um, and I think that's where people are seeing the most the most benefit and the quality of care that's being provided. So mm-hmm. just even starting with that conversation about relief versus development yeah. um, could be beneficial. I really like that point. So I think the language you use, whether it's with your patients or with each other, when you're talking about building these kind of new ideas and improving on organizations. So changing the term from like medical relief, because relief is maybe like a cold compress applied to your bruise or a Band-Aid that's just providing a temporary solution um, to something like developmental would be great just to amplify your thoughts to the audience. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit um, about what you found about those people who are like in the, at the very top. So those mm-hmm. organizations that you identified who are the champions in their fields who are mm-hmm. doing everything right. Can you describe what exactly are they, what are the examples that you saw? Yeah. How do they function? Yeah, for sure. Um, if anything, um, one of the organizations allowed me to share who they are. Um, but I also don't t- typically do that right off the bat because <laughs> it kind of like leaves... 17 other organizations undisclosed. Um, but so one of the organizations um, ended up creating like a hospital system. They started off with a short-term clinic model. They came in, they did relief trips. They started partnering with local pharmacies, local organizations, the government. And while there was no medical care in that area of Africa, um, they have a base in Latin America. But the part that they actually got further in was in Africa, where they not only have pulled out, but they're kind of just screening and seeing how it's going. Like, that's the one that's gone so far. So they're in a little less of a developmental phase in their Latin America branch. Um, But because they have that model that they've seen in Africa, they're doing the same thing. So that's pretty exciting. Um, What they're doing is mostly based on taking their doctors, their medical professionals, and training the professionals who are local counterparts. So working together not as like a mentor-mentee, but more as an equal, and then saying, how can I bolster the skills you've learned in your country, and how can I make you feel comfortable when I pull out? Um, So something like that. Yeah. So, Hmm? go ahead. Can you speak a little more to the like structural like, organizational mm-hmm. things? Are they bringing their people? Is it like academic partnerships? They bring people from the same places, or they recruit volunteers from kind of all over the place? Do they provide funding to the volunteers? Like, do they sponsor their travel? Or do they have like a fee system? So because I've seen like a lot of different models, and I'm curious what are they organizations doing? That's a great question. So originally, um, because they didn't have those partnerships in place yet, they were doing what a lot of organizations tend to do. And if you guys need to leave, like if I'm going over time, don't worry about it. Like, room's free. But um, So they would take the donated medications um, from the U.S. and bring them in. Obviously, that's not a sustainable pathway. Um, So what they ended up doing was creating those local partnerships with um, groups already on the ground. And it might not even be a local organization. It might be like a 
already established external organization that is there for a very long time that might be providing medications or like technology or like supplies. Um, in particular to what you're speaking about, before they got really big in the administrative side, um, I think it was a big portion focused on like public health and education. So there's only so much you can do as a medical professional, <coughs> I'm sorry, when you come in to treat their illness. But when you're creating continuity through like public health campaigns, through education of your counterparts, that's when you're starting to create something that's more sustainable, something that that local system can continue on their own. So yeah, is that is that answering your question, or would you want more? Um, just about the doctors that mm -hmm. you could address, like uh, where do they recruit their doctors from, that come from overseas? Is like through academic partnerships, or is it like different people from different places? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of the doctors were volunteers, such as many of yourselves, who came in to do some kind of medical work in another country. And then for their local counterparts, um, there's a lot of actually conversation around the issue of there's no medical deficit in some of those areas. In some areas of the world, like where there is no like organized system for healthcare, there are still people who want to serve that area from a more local area. So just being able to spread the word and say, hey, I know that you, anyone who's interested in coming to help your local community, like, we're doing this education outreach. We're teaching our counterparts to be able to care for these communities and help you guys ideate around a sustainable way to come in from, like, maybe nearby cities and care for your own communities. Mm -hmm. So they might not be, like, from the community themselves because some of them are very, very impoverished or some of them are just very isolated, but they could still be from within the country, and that's a better solution than someone who's flying 6,000 miles away and coming in every three months. So, yeah. Have you yeah. finished your presentation? Uh, yes, I finished my presentation. Um, so this is more of a Q&A session. So, sorry. Uh, one of you two, how about this one on that side, since you already had a chance? I just wanted to share another resource of a book Perfect. called One Healthcare Nurse, an Evidence-Based Guide for Best Practices in Global Health Initiatives. That's One Healthcare Hurts. One Healthcare. When. Oh, When Healthcare Hurts? Yes. Okay, great. Okay, great. Thank you. All right. Any other? Um, yes, sir.
very simple approaches that are highly effective. Right. Don't put people at risk from the incense and all the other over-the-counter medications that we often use. That's a great point. Thank you for sharing that. Great. Um, sorry, sir? I take uh, college students to police every other year, and one of the things we do is sort of backing up to the, the earlier prepping uh, question is I get a closed Facebook page uh, for the summer before the trip in January, and I show them selected videos from YouTube on the different cultures, the medical practice, schooling, everything that's sort of going on in the country. So when they come in and start their four-month preparation, they really have a pretty good feel about music and culture and just everything that's happening in Belize. And so that's really good prep. And then what's really fun for those who are taking these kinds of trips, over Christmas break before we go on our trip, they can invite all their friends and family to the Facebook page. So when we're in Belize, I can post pictures and updates, and all of a sudden everybody becomes a family, including all their sponsors and supporters. But uh, yeah, I really agree. The whole health education component is, is huge, and uh, not to be anybody else who is serving in Belize. Great. Thank you so much for sharing. All right. Any last questions before we wrap up? Okay. Okay. Thank you. I'll be here after in case you guys have any, like, information you need to grab. <laughs>